It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on Hallowed Ground for strings, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on Hallowed Ground to sing this song away. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Uh, this is the first time you heard the show. Hey, welcome aboard. If you old to the show, you pretty much know the routine. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount of taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going to court. That's avoiding probate, which is very important in today's world. Trying to save assets from nursing home bills and pay the least amount of taxes we need to pay legally. The second part of the show, we talk about other things, politics, history, religion. We'll, we'll get to that later. And as you know, we open the show usually with one of our attorneys. And today we're very happy to have Eugene Krivelitz with us. Welcome to the show again. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Okay. So we, we usually start, you ask a question or there's a question either that we have from the email or you, or you picked up at the office recently. So what's your question for the crowd? Uh, a few clients we recently had have a real property, a house that they live in. They have a few kids, and maybe one of their children has been helping them, or they feel that they need to protect that child. And what they want to do is allow that child to live in the house or to continue residing in the house after they're gone. So the question we often receive from these clients is, what can they do to make sure that child is able to stay living in the house? Will they have to pay bills for the house? Who will be responsible for paying the the costs of them living in the house? And is there anything that could be done to make sure the other kids don't force them out of the house? So I know it's multiple questions within the question, but it's all related to to these kind of yeah. situations. Well, those are the questions when, you know, ordinarily, if you want to do that, you want to put the house in a trust so it doesn't go through probate. Because if the house goes through probate, the children can all litigate the matter. And obviously, they may be the most efficient way to do it. So if we put in the the trust in a house, it doesn't go through court, it doesn't go through probate. And then we have to decide, or you have to decide, what the terms of the trust are. Now, one, you, you, you could say that your child that's living in the house has the right to live in the house for the rest of his or her life. But you got to be a little careful what you wish for, because let's say, you know, your child is 50 years old and your other children are close to the same age. If that child lives to be 80 or 90, the other children may not ever see part of that house. And is that fair? That's for you to decide. Um, the other thing is, ordinarily, the child who's lived in the house 
ordinarily has to pay the taxes, the insurance, the expenses of the house. And usually the formula is they pay the, the upkeep and the maintenance of the house, major repairs or whatever is, you know, paid by all the owners of the house. But here's the question, you know, like let's say you got three kids and one kid's living in the house exclusively and the boiler breaks down. We could say that the trust, if you have money in the trust, pays for the house. But if you don't have money in the trust, it's kind of unfair for a child who doesn't live in the house to start paying for the repair of the boiler that he or she's not living in, that his brother or sister is not living in. And and I'm not saying there's not a right answer to this stuff. This is the kind of stuff we have to talk around when we do a trust to figure out what, you know, what is it going to say? And, of course, one of the biggest things it says, what if something happens to the child who's living in the house? Where does the house go? And, you know, some people think it's not that big, big an idea or that big a deal to put the house in trust for one child and then that child can live there the rest of his or her life. Maybe the other children are not going to see any part of the house. Now, if they have children, that may soften the blow. If you say, my son has a right to live in the house for the rest of his life, my daughter has a right to live in the house for the rest of her life, provided she pays the taxes, insurance, real estate bills, so forth. But when the house is eventually sold, part of it goes to my other children's children, you know, if, if they're not around. So that might soften the blow. Um, but it, it's one thing to think out, and you want to solve problems, not make them. And... You know, it may not be fair that one child lives in the house for the rest of his or her life um, and the other children get nothing. At, at the other hand, you know, if you have one child who's taking care of you and is devoting his or her life to you and the other children are not doing anything to take care of you, maybe it is fair. Maybe it's fair you leave the whole house to that one child that lives with you. So that, that those are questions. There's not a right answer ahead of time. But ordinarily, under most circumstances, the child that lives in the house pays the taxes, the insurance the regular expenses of the house. And then you go from there. And, of course, if you have money, maybe the money goes to the other children, depending on the circumstances. But it's, it, you work to pay the mortgage off on that house. You have to decide, you know, you have to decide what is going where. We can talk about it. The most efficient way for it to get there to the children is to do a trust agreement. It's your house as long as you're alive. And the terms, hopefully, are clearly spent out and put in there. And one thing you should not do is say, well, my children will work it out. Because let's say you have three children, you may have three different ideas of what's fair. And that's where the fights may come in. It should be in writing. You should make the decision where the house goes after you're gone, who pays what, who pays what expenses. Maybe you have a three family house, maybe the rents pay for the expenses. You know, that would be one uh, example. Maybe after the expenses, the rents are still divided among the other children. There, there, there's so many variables that could happen, but the main thing is for you to take charge, figure out what you want to do, and then we put it in writing. And again, there's not a right answer. We have to talk it over and figure out what's best according to your decision, what's best for your family and the family members. And, and it shouldn't be vague. It should be clear enough. Your children can always come to an agreement to change it if circumstances change. But you want to start with the guidelines. You want to know what your children can do or, or not do. And that's what estate planning is. You try to figure out what's going to happen after you're gone. And our job is to put it in writing and get it out tax-free, you know, and free of medical bills, nursing home bills. One of the good advantages when you have a child living in the house, if you have a child living in the house for more than two years and your house is in a trust, in effect, that house is protected from medical bills, nursing bills immediately. You know, a lot of you hear about the five-year look-back period. There is a five-year look-back period, but basically if your house is in a trust 
and you have a child living in the house for more than two years, that house is protected from medical bills immediately. Yes, there is a five-year look-back period. Medicaid can look at to see if the child did live in the house, other circumstances like that. But again, you can protect your house immediately if you have a child living in the house who's been taking care of you. The house can be protected immediately. Uh, it's subject to the five-year look-back period, but as long as you have a child living in the house for more than two years, usually that house is exempt from nursing home and medical bills. Yeah. Eugene, does that, was there anything else that was coming up with the client that was talking about it? No, I think that's a very good summary of the broad scenarios here. I think uh, one thing to mention is these situations are very unique. Um, clients are best uh, advised to come in and speak to an attorney to get advice that tailored to their situations. Uh, we can give general advice, uh, how to save the most taxes, advice on how to uh, preserve the house. But oftentimes the parents want to take care of their child, oftentimes a disabled child, and by leaving the house to the disabled child who has no income and no ability to pay carrying costs, oftentimes it, it creates more problems than the creator of the trust intended to resolve in the first place. So I think it's very important for people to discuss their unique circumstances with their attorney, discuss the reason for the creation of the trust and the reason why they're leaving a right to reside or a life estate to their child, and let us try to tailor an individual uh, solution to try to minimize the, the risk of having their kids years after they're gone litigate over what happens to the house if the bills are not being paid, what happens to the house if, uh, house if uh, something happens to the disabled child. So I think, I think your summary covered it well, but I want to stress the fact that these situations are unique and, and uh, an appointment with an attorney to discuss the specifics is usually always advised. Yeah, because let's say you have a disabled child. Does that disabled child have a source of income to keep the house going? Now, maybe that child worked 20 years and they've got a good Social Security check coming in, or maybe they've worked and they've saved money over the years, and maybe they get a disability pension from their job, you know, like a New York City police officer or something like that, or, or maybe they never really worked a substantial job and they got a minimal amount of Social Security disability, maybe SSI even. In that case, you're not going to have enough money to keep the house up, so where's the money going to come? Now, in some cases, you might be able to get a reverse mortgage, but a reverse mortgage really eats at the equity of the house. And if you have a disabled child who can't pay back that mortgage, well, when the child's gone, that you know we may lose the house at that point, depending on the circumstances. So these are all factors to look at. And, and don't get me wrong. If you get a reverse mortgage, you don't lose your house. But what the example I'm giving is, let's say you have a child, disabled child who doesn't have enough income, and he lives in the house for a number of years, and... You, he borrows money against the house in a reverse mortgage. Well, if he never makes any payments on the reverse mortgage when the child is gone, basically that house, there may be such a huge lien on the house that the children can't sell it for enough of a profit to keep it. And so you got to be aware of these things. You know, that not everything, you know, you got to think things out. You got to talk things back and forth. Um, like I said, there's no right answer, but if you want to come in and talk it over with us, you're more than welcome to do it at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Um, Eugene, like, where, where are you from originally, and what's what's your background? Where did you work before you came to us? Well, originally, I came from Belarus uh, at 11 years old. 
I lived in New York since I was 11. Um, previously, I worked in different legal fields, uh, some guardianships, landlord-tenant practice. Also, was a prosecutor in Staten Island for a few years. Now, as far as I know, the prosecutor in Staten Island, um, McMahon, he's the only prosecutor in the area who's really a, a opposed to cashless bail or no bail? That is correct. As far as I know, he was the only prosecutor. At the time when the law was passed, he, out of the five boroughs, was the only prosecutor to come out publicly and make a statement against the cashless bail. Yeah, and you know, there, there are other sorts of things, too. Like if somebody gets arrested uh, and they're charged with a crime, they ha they can get all sorts of information on the victim? That is also correct in that defense is entitled to have a reasonable contact to be able to reach out to every victim and witness in any criminal proceeding. It doesn't have to be a specific form of contact, but it has to be reasonably uh, calculated to allow the defense to get in touch with the victim. doesn't mean that the victim has to speak to the defense attorney. It doesn't create an obligation on their behalf, but oftentimes we have witnesses, we have victims, they get contacted by the defense attorneys. These sometimes are not sophisticated people who misunderstand the nature of the phone call that they receive. They get nervous, scared. They, they're scared that the defendant might have their contact information because the defense attorney is contacting them, which could reasonably often lead to situations where they choose not to proceed because of fear of retribution, and especially it's a problem with witnesses. A witness doesn't have much skin in the game, so to say, in the first place, but now you're saying that you know maybe it's a drug case, maybe it's a violent assault. You're asking for a person who's not in any way invested in that situation, but just happened to be at that place at that time, you're asking him to provide his information to the defense attorney who might be representing a habitual violent offender. So does anybody want to be in that position? I don't think so. A lot of times people choose not to proceed as a witness and they just flat out tell the prosecutor, I don't want any trouble. Please don't call me any longer. And there's nothing you could do about that. You can't force them. Yeah, but let's say for the sake of argument, you have a witness who witnessed a violent assault. In effect, they know that the perpetrator, the person who committed the crime, has their phone number and address and personal information. So well, it has to be one form of contact. It could be a phone number. It could be an email or it could be any other reasonably calculated uh, contact. So an email is fine. But some people don't want any contact shared, right? They, they're afraid that the defendant will somehow, you know, learn of their identity. And also there's misunderstanding about what is provided, what is not provided. Oftentimes, even if you tell a witness that if they give us permission only to share the email, we will not share any other information. They're worried that somehow the defendant will get, you know, to know their identity, and, and be able to intimidate them or do something to them. Well, I mean, I would assume between some defense attorneys and their clients, some defense attorneys may not be that careful about protecting the information of the witness. That, that's true. It depends on who the defense attorney is. It, mistakes are made. Um, there's different situations where the defendant could potentially incidentally 
find out the identity of a witness. Um, people, generally speaking, not only are they not in, invested in, in the situation, they don't want to put themselves at risk, you're already asking them to potentially come take a day of work to come to court and testify in the case. I mean, besides that, now you're asking for their personal information to provide to the defense counsel. It's going to lead to a lot of situations where you have people who are not cooperative just because of all these requirements. Now, I understand that there, there's some proposals to, to, you know, make it a little bit harder to get bail. Um, do you know anything about it? I don't. So I, I do know after the law was passed approximately three years ago, it was virtually impossible to get bail on misdemeanor crimes, and a lot of felonies were also made bail ineligible. So, for example, any drug crime, for the most part, was bail ineligible, um, unless you were considered to be a drug kingpin. And I haven't seen a single case where there was a drunk, drug kingpin arrested in New York. So... There has been a little change since. I believe that they have expanded on the number of uh, categories of crimes that meet the criteria to have to allow the judge to have discretion to issue bail. I still think that compared to what it was in the past, prior to 2020, um, it's it's a lot harder to get bail. There's a lot more burdens and uh, obstacles for prosecution to get over in order to get that bail and also I feel like the judge has less discretion than before uh, in how to set that bail so ultimately I think uh, people are less safe because of that I think that there's a lot more defendants who get processed, get arraigned and are right back on the street and get rearrested before even their next court appearance from what I've seen personally a lot of defendants if you let them out, they're going to commit the same crime uh, two days later. Uh, whatever issues they have, underlying issues that caused them in the first place to commit the crime, are still there after they get arraigned. Is there any... F I mean, it sounds like there's no fear on the part of the defendant. Yeah. You know, he, there's no consequences if he doesn't show up. I guess there are some, but it, yeah. it's vague and uncertain. It, there's definitely less consequences, I, I think, that they were before in terms of, you know, a lot of misdemeanors from what I've seen, even though potentially the jail sentences typically on misdemeanor crimes, the judge does not uh, sentence anyone to jail time unless it's egregious and the defendant has a very lengthy rap sheet. Um, so sentencing in itself is definitely more lenient and there's definitely less time being uh, sentenced on defendants. I think that uh, what a lot of people fail to understand or don't talk as often about is that defendants are very aware of the situation. I think that oftentimes defendants or habitual offenders, they're very aware of uh, the situation in courts, what are the punishments being handed out for different kinds of crimes, Oftentimes, they'll know exactly what realistically they're facing for different types of crimes. And to a degree, I feel that there's a cal calculus that's being performed by the defendant, whether something is worth committing a crime for or not. And I think that that scale has shifted toward 
the the potential punishment is so so much less than it was before that there's almost that uh, extra incentive, if you want to call it that, to to yeah. not fear punishment and to commit the crime. Yeah, when I was a kid, there always used to be the shows, you know, crime does not pay. But I guess in today's world, you can put the equation or the calculus in there and crime does pay as, as long as you stay within certain limits. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of defendants know what those limits are and they're not afraid to push the limits because whether it be the case or not, the perception now is that the court is very weak. Um, the judges' hands are tied behind the backs. Prosecutors are unable to do what they were able to do in the past. Like I said, drug cases, instead of going to jail, drug dealers, not just users, are being sent uh, to treatment programs, sometimes outpatient treatment programs. So we're talking about somebody who's dealing heroin or crack cocaine on the street being arrested for dealing, and then he gets six months of outpatient treatment at the facility. Now, if this is a person making money, their livelihood is dealing drugs, and you're going to let them out right after they are arrested on no bail, what do you, what do you think they're going to do? Are they, you know, they going to stop dealing drugs, or are they going to continue doing the same thing they were doing 24 hours ago? Yeah, and they might need money to pay for their lawyer. <laughs> exactly. Even more incentive. <laughs> right, uh, to do the things. Okay, well, we run out of time on our segment. Gene, thank you for, you know, discussing a little bit about criminal law, even though it's not part of our practice here. But thank you for being on uh, on the show. Thank you for having me. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. The Guild for Exceptional Children, or GEC, has been providing excellent care to children and adults with developmental disabilities since 1958. It is our mission to help build better lives and brighter futures for the people in our care. We serve nearly 1,000 individuals each day and are proud that 90 cents of every dollar is used for actual services. Please visit www.gecbklyn.org or call 718-833-6633 to learn more. I'm in a good place in my life. And I'm energized by new adventures. I've got friends to laugh with. And a good relationship. But 
even though I'm kind of comfortable. I sometimes wonder, is there something more? Could God in church be what you're looking for? Come and see at CatholicsComeHome.com. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We switched attorneys right now on the show. Right now, we have Nicole Donnelly on uh, on. And, Nicole, you were, I guess, blasting off about people in deed changes and their questions. So what what was on your mind? We just see so many people who come in with deeds that to them mean one thing and to us mean a completely different thing. So, for example, what does that mean? People say to us all the time, well, I don't need to protect my house because my deed says join tenants with the right of survivorship. So I'm going to avoid probate. And I say, yes, that's true. You will avoid probate. But as we all know, while estate planning isn't rocket science, we talk about Medicaid. We talk about taxes. We talk about a lot more than just avoiding probate. So did you accomplish that with your joint tenants with right of survivorship? And what would you tell them, Mr. Connors? Well, joint tenants with right of survivorship will avoid probate on the first person to die. It wouldn't avoid probate on the second person to die. And that's what a lot of people don't look at. You know, like if everybody dies... So if you have a property joint tenants with right of survivorship, yeah, when the first person dies, we've avoided probate. When the second person passes away, um, we may have some problems. And, you know, like one of the things, you know, like if somebody says, why don't I just put the, the house, just put my children's name on my deed or just give the house to my children, um, it's, it's very hard for me to step back and stay calm in that because that is really such a stupid idea for so many reasons. You put your your you know your your son's name on your deed, he's married, he passes away, you're in partnership with your daughter-in-law. And you know, if you put your somebody else's name on the deed, let, let's say you put your son's name on the deed, joint tenants or right of survivorship. Your son passes away. His wife, his wife, his spouse has a right to put a claim in against his estate which includes, in part, the deed that you put joint tenants with right of survivorship. 
she can put a claim in against this estate. There's a good shot that your house is part of that claim. She can own part of your house and force a sale of your house. Um, and people don't realize that. You put somebody else's name on your deed. You're giving them the right to force a sale of your house. But you say, well, how can that happen? It's joint tenants right of survivorship. It comes back to me. But if you're married, you have to leave your spouse at least a third of your estate or they can put a claim in against your estate. And in this case, that's what could very easily happen. And I mean, some of the stories that we talk about that, you know, have happened, you put your, you know, your daughter's name on your deed, your daughter dies. Next thing you know, your grandson inherits the house and he says, hey, grandma, thanks for the house. Uh, I think you should look for a place to live. And, you know, that that's a real case that happened. Uh there, there's so many examples, and and not only that. Let's say you got a senior citizens exemption. You got a mother and daughter. Mom puts daughter's name on the deed. Got she's got a senior citizen exemption. All of a sudden, the city says, "Hey, wait a minute! You changed the deed. Is your daughter a senior citizen?" Well, no. How much income does she make? Does she live in the house? No. So all of a sudden, you lost your senior citizens, your um, star program exemptions which your real estate taxes, especially if you lose the senior citizen's exemption, may double or triple. Um, now, if you have a veteran's exemption, that's not going to be lost because you put somebody else's name on the deed. But if you have a senior citizen's exemption, your taxes are reduced by a third, if, if not a quarter. Um, not to reduce by a third, they're a third of what you would be paying. And if you lose that exemption, your real estate taxes on your house triple. And if you're a senior citizen, can you afford that? And I would expect no, because if you have the senior citizen exemption, your income is not that high. Um, you know, and then you say, uh, then I've seen this too. I put the the house in my son's name, but I have a will leaving the house to my three children. Well, guess what? That will has no effect on a house that's left, that's put in somebody else's name, you know, as a deed. And once you deed that house over, you've lost control of the house. And that's why, you know, so many times we come back and we want to start talking about, you know, putting the house in trust. I mean, what other examples have you come up with in the last few days? Well, another thing that I've seen that joint tenants with right of survivorship doesn't take care of is preserving the cost basis and ensuring that the person who inherits gets the stepped-up-in cost basis. Can we tell everybody who's listening how just putting somebody on their deed screws up their cost basis and screws up the inheritance portion and how we get them the stepped-up? Yeah, well, let's say for the sake of argument, again, you put your son's name on your deed, he doesn't live in the house. And then when you go to closing, the real estate attorney puts your son's Social Security number on the uh, closing documents, and he doesn't live in the house, well, you've lost the personal exemption there. Now, if you pass away and the deed is joint tenants with right of survivorship, if it's reported right, and a lot of times it's not, and you put down that your son didn't pay anything for the house and then his name was put as convenience purposes, you might, you would get the stepped-up basis if it's reported right. But in a lot of times I don't see that. Because a lot of accountants, you know, the name's on the deed, the son owns half the house, so the son's got to pay capital gains on his half of the house. So let's say for the sake of argument, you have a million-dollar house. You paid 50000 for it 30 years ago. Um, you pass away, the, the house worth a million. The accountant takes 500000 as your half, and then your son's got the 500000 
then all of a sudden he's paying on his capital gain four hundred fifty thousand dollars. He's got a capital gain fifty thousand to um, five hundred, so he's got a four hundred fifty thousand dollar capital gain. That means more than one hundred fifty thousand dollars in taxes are paid. And if you pay those taxes, I wouldn't want to try to get them back. And of course, if you make a straight gift, there's no question you've lost the uh, capital gains exclusion. If the, the if you sell the house while you're alive. If your son doesn't live in the house, he's going to get killed with capital gains when he sells. And even after you're gone, there could be complications. Like I said, the accountant, the the attorney at the closing puts down your son's Social Security number at, at the closing. It's not properly reported. Well, then, again, you could hurt with taxes. And one thing, I mean, you know, it's kind of in my DNA. But one thing is, no matter what, we don't want to pay taxes. We don't have to pay You've worked hard enough where you don't want the government to get part of your estate. We want to put a plan together where we keep the IRS out of your estate as much as possible. And that's really not that hard. You know, sometimes people say, well, no matter what you do, they're going to get you. No, you put your house in a trust. You can get $6.5 million out tax-free in New York State, $12,900,000 as far as the federal government is concerned. And, of course, if we've got a married couple, we can get $13 million out tax-free for New York State. And we can give almost over $25 million out tax-free as far as the federal government is concerned. So, you know, we can usually do that for 90% of the, 98% of the listening audience. We can get the estate out tax-free because we can drive a truck through 6.5 million times, too, in a married couple, $13 million. But you got to do it right. Give an example. Let's say for the sake of argument, you live in New York. You're single. Your spouse has passed away. you got a $7 million estate. You screw it up, and New York State's going to charge you about $800,000 in taxes. And and that's a sin. It's a crime. But that's what it is if you don't do it right. So if you've got close to $6 million worth of assets, you need to do some planning. And, of course, one of the easiest plans to do for some people is just move to Florida. Because let's say for the sake of argument, you've got a $10 million estate in New York. Your children are going to pay a million dollars in taxes. You move to Florida, the children don't pay taxes. And to some extent, you move to New Jersey. You know, you move from Staten Island to Elizabeth, New Jersey or something. And you save your kids a million dollars in taxes. But the one warning we have, I guess, is that you really have to move. You don't just say you moved. You just don't get a library card and sign a lease and whatever. You physically move from New York to New Jersey, and you set up your residency in, in New Jersey um, or Florida. Florida is obviously the more common scenario that we use in today's world. But if if you say you're living in Florida, please live in Florida. Don't try to fake it because they get your cell phone records. They get your credit char- card charges. They get your easy pass records. And pretty much, you know, somebody always comes to, well, my father, he doesn't have an, he doesn't have a cell phone he doesn't have a credit card uh how are you going to prove he doesn't live in new york and sometimes you know i might be stumped for a minute but i bet you somebody in the new york state tax department can prove that he lived in new york somehow or some way so you know if if you say you live somewhere really live there before you take some deductions off your tax return and if we're not worried about one boogeyman which is the tax department we're worried about the other boogeyman which is medicaid what happens when you have joint tenants with right of survivorship and somebody needs Medicaid? Well, that could be a problem. And it can be more than a simple problem because let's say for the sake of argument, you have an investment property, joint tenants with right of survivorship. The 
let's say it's between mother and daughter. Mother goes to a nursing home. Uh, she can't apply for Medicaid because she owns half an investment property. And she can't just deed it to her daughter unless the daughter's disabled. She can't just deed it to her daughter and then apply for Medicaid. There's a five-year look-back period, a five-year penalty. So if you put it in the trust, at least you get the five-year started. If you put it joint tenants with right of survivorship, well, in that case, you know, you still got five years on the other half. And five years, you got an investment property worth a million dollars. It's not likely you're even going to have a nursing home bill that's more than 500000 The whole $500,000 is going to go to a nursing home. And the average cost of a nursing home right now, when I'm saying 15000 a month, that's a little bit on the low side. The, the prices are inching up where it's closer to sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars $17,000 a month. And there's some places in Manhattan you can see $20,000, $21,000, $22,000 a month. So let me ask you something. If you don't plan in advance and you got you go to a nursing home and you got a $20,000, $22,000 a month nursing home bill, you know, do you want that lien to be on your half of the house? Typically, everybody says, no, they don't want the lien to be on any part of the house, but then you ask them, why join tenants with right of survivorship instead of a trust? Why not get it out of your name individually and start protecting it? And it's because sometimes if you just go to a real estate lawyer and you tell them, I'm looking to avoid probate, they will give you a deed that does just that. But it doesn't do everything else that we've talked about. And that's the important part of picking the right lawyer. You don't go to the foot doctor for eye surgery. Don't go to the real estate lawyer for estate planning purposes. I think that's really important. What about those do-it-yourself kits? Oh, my God. <laughs> he says it just to boil my blood. Nothing makes me crazier than do-it-yourself kits. Guys, if you get a kit that's 500 pages, they're hoping you don't read it. They don't want you to read it. I promise you they don't. And then you want to bring it to us for us to read it. I mean, nobody wanted to read it. Let's be serious. Don't do a kit that's that big. Don't buy them. Don't do anything yourself. Just come into Connors and Sullivan. Right. I mean, those kits, most of those kits that I've seen are so contradictory. One section contradicts another section. Um, and, 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 you know, sometimes you have one minor thing that gets screwed up. Like, in other words, you say, I leave it to my children in three equal shares, and maybe one of your children's disabled, and you don't want to leave it quite, you know, without a trust. Or maybe you have one child from a previous marriage, previous relationship, and you say, I leave it to my children in a certain sections in there, because nobody, in a lot of those kits, nobody takes out the pages and changes the pages to you know, conform with what your wishes are. They're just, you're buying a book, which is, yeah, they say is good for all 50 states, and it very, very well might be. But the thing is, nobody's reading the insides of the book, and there are all sorts of crazy things in there. Um, and, and again, contradictory language, you know, is is all over the place. And you, I, I can read the stuff, and half the times I don't understand what it means. I mean, a trust should be simple enough where somebody can point to the relevant paragraphs and say, here, your house on whatever the address is is going to these two children. Your house, wherever it is, is going to your other two children. Uh, whatever's left over is four shares. Your son is the trustee. Your daughter's the alternate trustee. The trust should be relatively simple in certain paragraphs. Yeah, we do, we do rely on what some people call boilerplate, but boilerplate, I think, is a misnomer because it's it's not – boilerplate and it's just there it's there for reasons to take care of the what ifs you know to, to protect 
you and your plan. You know, it's not just there because it makes it look hard to read. It's there to to, to protect you from the what-ifs, from the standard things that happen to a lot of people. So I, I think boilerplate is a misnomer. Um, in, in some cases, yes, it is. But in most cases, it's boilerplate because you put it in there because it applies to 90 95% of the families. Like, in other words, if something happens to one of your children – Ordinarily, you want it to go to their children, your grandchildren. doesn't have to. And that's one of the things you change. And that's what a lot of those things, those books, they're not very flexible because the, the, the guys who sell the books, I don't really understand the middle. I don't think they really understand the middle of them. And so they're not good at crafting the what ifs and, and things, language like that. And I would, I would stay away from those books because for, for one reason, you don't understand them. Your first reading, I defy anybody to tell me what's in some of those books on the first reading. And, you know, it's it's just, and one thing I also don't like about those books, it's so easy to take one page out and put another page in. How do we know about the integrity of those books? And sometimes people have their wills in there. So in other words, you have a will, I leave everything to my three children, two equal share, three equal shares. You get in a fight with one of the kids and you want to change your will and you just take out the one sheet and put another one in. Well, that's not valid. And I, I think you're opening it up for litigation and lawsuits. I don't think those books have been litigated enough because percentage-wise, not that many people litigate, but things are going to happen. Like, I'm I'm not even sure someday, you know, like I know the governor allowed us to sign wills by Zoom, you know, for a period of time after the, the COVID crisis, but I'm not even sure that the governor had the constitutional authority to change the law of wills by an executive order, and is somebody going to come back in a couple of years and say, hey, you know, the law says the will should be signed in the presence of the witnesses and so forth, and, you know, Zoom was not the presence of the witnesses. How do I know this will mm-hmm. is valid? And ask for the, the one of the appellate divisions. i got a hunch the appellate division is going to bend over backwards to justify the execution of a will that was signed by executive order by the governor, but I don't know. Maybe some appellate court is going to rule the other way i'm sure there's going to be a lot of um will contests for wills done during covid just because people's state of mind rash decisions you know just in general not being in the room with the attorneys who was in the room with them you know even when we were signing we would say are you by yourself but you could never really know during that time yeah we knew very well that every once in a while we could see it that somebody was moving in the background we saw a shadow and said who's that and you don't get a straight answer mm-hmm. you know like if, if the client's in front of you and you're in the room you know who's in the room and who's not but with the you know zoom signings and listen we had to do zoom signings sometimes if a client was in a nursing home you weren't able to go into the nursing home so it was either not do the will or do a will by zoom so obviously we did it i think it's valid but I, I think somebody would have a good argument someday to say, hey, you know, I'm I'm not a constitutional scholar by any stretch, but somebody somebody might say that in the New York State Constitution that the governor, uh, Governor Cuomo at the time, did not have the right to change the law of wills that had been in, in place for like 200 years on his own just by executive order without even legislative approval. And a lot of screwy things happened during that time mm-hmm. period. But we'll see what happens. So what other common mistakes do you see? I mean, 
I see way too many, but I just want to go back to what we were talking about because we're over here scrutinizing what we did during COVID as far as Zoom signings with attorneys and people just go out and have their will signed and witnessed like in their kitchen by their neighbors who like may or may not still live there in like two or three years. Just random people off the street come witness my will like and, you know, they give it not a thought after they put it away in their drawers, in their basements. Um, what happens if your will gets destroyed? Let's say you have a really good will. We did a will for you and your will gets destroyed in your basement in a flood. Do you still have a will that you can probate? Well, that's a question of fact. And that question of fact may end up in the hands of a judge. Depending on the circumstances, what witnesses testify, don't testify. You know, if somebody independent can say... Yeah, I heard I knew the will was in the basement and there was a flood in the basement on a certain date. Yeah, you might be able to get that will probated, but you may not. The judge may say that's not enough proof and the will doesn't get probated. And, uh, you know, and this comes to a question that you could ask a 100 times. You want to keep your will in a safe place. Where's a safe place? I don't know. If you asked me on September 10th, 20 years ago, was the basement of the World Trade Center a safe place? I would say yes. But guess what? It wasn't. Um, but we definitely don't recommend like banks and stuff, right? Like we see a lot of people who put their most important, most valuable papers in safety deposit boxes. And then whoever's left or joined on the safety deposit box goes to get the documents. And they're like, you know, they locked it. And I'm like, you're surprised they locked it? They passed. It's like, yeah, but I was joint. The, the bank doesn't treat the safety deposit box joint the same way they treat the accounts, right? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. Although there is some case law that says the banks are supposed to let the joint tenant in. But if the bank says no, you got to go to court. And if you go to court, sometimes it's just easy to get a court order to open up the safe deposit box. So we, we don't want to have to go to court. And, you know, but the, I would rather will, though, be in a safe deposit box safe than lost. It's a lot less work to get it out of the, you know the safe deposit box than it is to try to prove a lost will. Um, again, there's no one right answer to this stuff. you got to come in and talk it over. Um, if if we act as executor on the will, we can't keep the will in our vault. And if you lose a will, if we lost the will because of fire, we can explain it, where if you passed away, you can't explain it. Um, because hopefully somebody in our office will be around to explain it in the long run. Uh, you know, we do have hopefully a chain of command, so to speak. Well, we're running out of time. Nicole, thank you very much for uh, coming on Connor's Corner. You're very welcome. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, tax and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now.
now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, there are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, now accompanied by my son, Michael. Hello, everyone. All right. So, you know, today we focused on estate planning. And by the way, I should mention, you know, and we didn't mention it in the interviews, but if you have anybody in your family that speaks Russian... Eugene is fluent in Russian, and Nicole is fluent in Spanish. And sometimes I lose track of how many languages we do have here in the office. So if you have any relatives that are not fluent in English, we have somebody here for most European languages that can take care of them. Like, again, Eugene speaks Russian, and Nicole speaks Spanish. What else we got, Michael? Okay, yeah, if you want the full list, I mean... English, of course, although, you know, certain people sometimes what English, what counts as English can be debatable. But yeah, um, especially if you lived in Brooklyn <laughs> or Louisiana. But um, we have English, Spanish, Italian, Greek, Polish, Romanian, Russian, Ukrainian, Mandarin, Cantonese, Fusionese, Tagalog and Hindi. I think that covers it. I'm not 100 percent sure, but, you know, that is that is as of our latest reading anyway. But OK. And, you know, we do our seminar uh, flyers. We, you know, usually put all the languages down that our staff speaks. And we do have dates now for our seminars. Uh, Michael, what are, what are the dates? And I'll, I'll give the places, if not me. But we're start, it's going to be starting in June. What's the first date we're going? All right. So the first date is June 19th at Buckley's here in Brooklyn. Then June 20th, which is going to be Staten Island. Uh, where in Staten Island, Dad? In DeLuca's restaurant. New place for us, but we've moved, we're have we going to be moving our office in Staten Island, so we're also going to move our seminar. Then June 21st, Greenhouse right here in Bay Ridge. June 22nd, Connolly's. And June 23rd, the Adria. In Queens, Bayside, Queens. Connolly's is in Maspeth, Queens. And, you know, and so we'll give you the, the, the times a little bit later. But those are the dates we're scheduled for those restaurants and hotels you're more than welcome the idea behind the seminars most of most of the questions in my experience over the years is centered about saving your house from nursing home bills i would say that's what most people are interested in doing more than anything else so if you come in give it questions i mean i know we use the same answer in a lot of cases but a trust is a great way to transfer your house to your children it goes out tax-free it doesn't go through court. It doesn't go through probate. You don't get involved with in-laws. You keep in-laws out of the plan, and the assets go straight 
to your children after you're gone. And again, you keep the in-laws out and the assets go out tax-free. And in today's world, you don't have to go through probate. But ask your questions, come in, you say, you know, you may ask a question, why don't I just give the house to my son and my daughter? Well, we talked about that a little bit with Nicole, but that's a good part of what we do talk about, you know, on the seminar. Also, if you have any questions to ask us, you know, to, to listen and some of our questions get answered answered on uh, another show, Kevin McCullough. But, Michael, where do they email us a question? If you want to email us a question, you go to askmikeconnors. Connors is spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S, askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Right. And you can ask any question whatsoever. If it's too personal to answer, you know, on the radio show, then we can send somebody to, to send an email. One thing I ask you to do, don't ask don't ask a question with 20 parts or something like that. If you have 20 questions to ask, come in for an appointment, schedule an appointment. Remember, the first consultation is free. Right. So you come come into one of our offices and we'll talk it over. But don't give us a 20 part question on a to answer on the radio or, you know, even back in an email. All right. We're going to be you know, it's time to wrap up the show. You can give us a call, schedule an appointment in one of our offices, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island and Manhattan. No charge for the initial consultation. We'll see you next week at the same stations, times, places. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.